MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of The Jack Podcast. It is the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, June 4th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And oh my gosh, do we have a week this week? <laughs> you know, we say this every time, Alice. It's like you you would get a, a day or two into the week and things are slow and we're starting to wonder, oh, how's this going to go? And then bam, we get a couple of dumps <laughs> on Wednesday, Thursday, uh, and then we just have a hard time squeezing it into the hour. So here we are again, another big week uh, on the special counsel scene. Yeah, we even had some news drop just like an hour ago uh, about uh, that the document, the Iran document, which we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, trying to pack all this news into into an hour a week is getting pretty tricky. But uh, we, I think we pulled it off. It is. I think we've got a good show for you. Um, and we've got a lot of news coming from Hugo Lowell, our friend over at The Guardian this week, including our very first story. Uh, and, and Hugo opens up saying federal prosecutors obtained audio recording of a summer 2021 meeting where Donald Trump suggested he should have declassified a military document about Iran that he admitted retaining. Uh, the recording, some, I'll give you some details and then we're going to we're going to talk about this because this is I think it's. It's very, very important, but I don't think it's really important for the same reasons that a lot of folks, a lot of pundits think it's important. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a second. But the recording was made at Bedminster, right? This is New Jersey. This isn't Mar-a-Lago. That's right. It was July of 2021. So it was almost two years ago. And this is uh, when the former president met with people helping his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, write a book by his aide, Margot Martin. She's who recorded it. And she regularly taped conversations with authors, which says to me there could be more out there. Oh, my God. I mean, it just opens up a whole door <laughs> of how many more of these great conversations of the president saying ridiculously bad things uh, could they possibly access. But more about that later, I guess. <laughs> There's just so much to cover. And for several minutes on the audio, audio recording, uh, Trump talks about how he cannot discuss the document because he no longer possesses the sweeping presidential power to declassify it because he's out of office. But he suggests that he should have done it when he was still in the White House. Yeah, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> and and he might have tried uh, and ran into some procedural problems because, as we know, on May 24th, Jack Smith got 16 documents from the National Archives proving that Donald knew there was a declassification That's process. Right. And I'm... I'm assuming one of the ways that he knew was failed attempts at declassifying (laughs) documents. (laughs) You know, they say you should try to learn from your failures. And hey, maybe that's what happened here. I'm trying to put a good spin on it, but uh, that's tough, getting tougher every day. Yeah. And and, and so when he's waving around this document in, in this meeting and you can hear the paper rustling, whatever the doc, whatever's in the document, we don't know, but... Uh, he he says, I you know I can hear him now. I'd love to show it to you. It's explosive. It proves so many things, but I can't because it's classified. Because uh, I'm allowed to have it because I'm awesome. You know, it's whatever. beautiful. It's strong. Everybody it's says tremendous. so. So I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> you know what what really amazes me is the the context of this conversation. Uh, apparently, 
The meeting took place days after a story appeared in The New Yorker by Susan Glasser that talked about, um, it wasn't based on an interview of Mark Miley, but talked about uh, somebody related a story to Glasser about how Miley had to convince Trump at the very end of his administration not to bomb Iran. And I guess Trump reacted negatively to that revelation. So he had this document, theoretically, in this conversation with Mark Meadows' writers, ghost writers of Mark Meadows' memoir, in an effort to essentially kick shade on General Miley. So I, you know, it's it's so it's so classic. You can completely see this lining up. And, and it, it also, in a way, if this is, if this is all bears out, right, we haven't heard the tape yet, but it totally sheds at least a little bit of light on why he kept this stuff. Why did he want this stuff around, right? We've talked about that. Was it for money? Was it for power? Was it for leverage? Who knows? Well, maybe one of those reasons might've been, Hey, I could really use this, uh, to exact revenge upon my enemies and people who say bad things about me, which is completely consistent with his, uh, with his personality and his modus operandi. Yeah. And, and this document, if it is the document that I think it is, uh, it, it, it's, Basically, Trump wanted to bomb Iran after Iran bombed Iraq and, uh, you know, missed our base and nobody was killed. uh, But there were some of our service members who ended up with TBI, traumatic brain injury, because of the the blast. Uh, And so Trump wanted to bomb specifically 52 sites in Iran, um, religious sites, uh, art sites, you know, cultural sites, and wanted them to draft this up and and millie was like bro that that escalation does not match what just happened uh basically and if my sources in the pentagon are correct this document does exist it wasn't drafted by millie but it may have it may have been briefed by millie but it does list these 52 sites that, that trump wanted to target you know this this is also like totally um Understandable. This is how business gets done in the National Security Council and at these principals meetings and deputies meetings. First of all, the principals, the big head honchos like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they don't draft anything. They're not the authors of the material that they bring into the meeting, right? He probably has hundreds, maybe thousands of analysts and people who work uh, on his staff who put a ton of time and effort into producing this stuff. And no matter what the president asks for, the agencies, in this case DOD, they produce documents to discuss options. It doesn't mean they're advocating for one or another. Uh, They may get to that point of a recommendation eventually, but they say, okay, you said, what would it take? How would we do it? Where would we go if we decided to bomb Iran? They produce a document like the one that's been described here that lays out some of the details about how that would happen. It's not a it's not a war plan per se. Those things are much bigger and more involved. But this is like a way to, to discuss the issue at the table in the situation room to put the president in a position to make a decision. Yeah. So uh, this is this is uh, purportedly what Trump may or may not have been talking about. Right. And, and Trump's lawyers believe the document is classified at the secret level. That's according to Trump's lawyers. Uh, which referenced military action concerning Iran, had been returned. They said they believe it had been returned to the National Archives months later. Uh, Now, I want to talk to you a minute about secret level 
documents. I know that uh, when I saw Hugo Lowell on MSNBC, I believe it was on the readout, he said that secret level documents are kind of like the Goldilocks documents, right? They're not so top secret that they can't be used as evidence in court, but they're not confidential, which is like, meh, meh, you know, okay, you got a confidential doc. I used to stamp my algebra homework confidential when I was in the Navy. So it's not because I decided, but because they told me I had to. So, it, you know, that's not that uh, moving uh, document to use in court. And so the, the, the folks at DOJ, who are the experts at deciding what evidence is used in classified documents cases, generally go for the secret documents. So that this document would be one of those documents. And uh, Hugo wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. Now, Jack Smith got this recording in March. And Empty Wheel brought up the fact that in April he subpoenaed Saudi docs. Now, I don't know that they, I don't know if she's implying a connection here, but I, I was sitting here trying to figure out what Saudi Arabia might want with some Iran war plans. Well, U.S. war plans in Iran. Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about two like bitter rivals in that region. And certainly the Saudi government probably spends a lot of time and attention trying to figure out. Uh, how to gain advantage over the Iranians and how to understand what the Iranians might do, and also to understand how they can enlist the support of their allies, and we are, of course, one, um, to to engage and address the threats that they are facing from Iran. So it's not beyond the scope of of the possible or reasonableness to think that it's the sort of topic that they would certainly be interested in. That said, it's hard to to make a connection, I think, at this point between uh, Trump's uh, allegedly, you know, incredibly irresponsible and likely illegal use of this document in his private golf club in New Jersey uh, in, in 2021 and, and some sort of involvement of the Saudis. There's a lot of other reasons, I think, that they also might have an interest in Saudi Arabia. We know, of course, of the longstanding relationship and interactions between Trump and members of his family and the Saudis. So, you know, you got to look at each one of these issues with the assumption that the prosecutors, Jack Smith, his team, they know a hundred times more than we know. There could be multiple streams of of investigative interest happening here, and they just haven't been exposed to us yet. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, a month after he subpoenaed the Saudi Arabia stuff, one month later in May, all of a sudden, Vivek, the guy uh, running for president, uh, on, I guess, maybe the no labels or the independent party, something. I don't know. He's running for president. He had to fire a firm that had people who'd been told they have to register under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. That's right. For their ties with the Live Golf Tournament. And I was wondering, like, oh, did he get a bunch of stuff and, like, hand it over to the ferry unit and said, you might want to call these guys? <laughs> like, I don't know. We're going to talk about Vivek later uh, in the show. But uh, basically, here's the Friday, the Today bombshell from CNN, attorneys for Donald Trump turned over material in mid-March in response to a subpoena related to that document. So after the recording, Jack Smith subpoenaed the Trump team for any and all documents and materials related to Mark Milley, Trump's chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Iran, including maps or invasion plans. Uh, a similar subpoena was sent to at least one other attendee of the meeting. So he, yeah, he, you know, he's following that uh, thread to its logical conclusion. Although I, I just want to point out a couple of things here. It was made clear when we had the special master battle down in the 11th circuit, in the old 11th circuit, with uh, Judge Eileen Cannon in the, in the district court down there in Florida, that 
none of these documents have to be classified for any of the laws that were in the search warrant affidavit to have been violated. National defense information is national defense information. And this document, if it is what Trump says it was in the meeting, is national defense information. It doesn't matter if it's classified Absolutely. or not. Absolutely right. Yeah. And the Department of Justice argued to the 11th Circuit, declassification is a red herring. And by the way, that's a public defense. Trump has not, has refused to. They, they tried to get Donald, are, is your defense that you declassified these documents? No. They, he never made that defense to the courts. So it's interesting here that, that Jack is following this thread all the way down uh, because it, on one hand, it seems like, you know, how you and I are talking about evidence that you gather to rebut a defense from Donald Trump That's versus right. evidence you gather to build a case. And this felt like evidence you gather to rebut a defense from Trump. But is Trump even going to make the declassification defense? I mean, I suppose he could in front of a jury, but he hasn't so far yet made it to a court. He hasn't. I think his lawyers have been particularly careful about that because they're, uh, you know, obviously I would expect them to be concerned about getting burned, right? Acting and, and making representations to the court that might be based on uh, misrepresentations they've received from their client. So I, I agree with you. I think this is most significant in that bucket. It works to directly undermine several possible defenses, by my count, three. And those are, you can't say it, the the discussion allegedly caught on tape completely debunks this theory that he didn't have classified documents, right? This is him yep. admitting that he had classified documents. So that's one. So you can't you can't defend yourself by saying I didn't have any. It also debunks the defense of I didn't know I had any for the same reason. He discusses it and admits it on this tape. And then finally, he knew that they were classified and he knew he didn't have the ability to declassify them after he left the White House, which, which you know, cuts the legs out from under the defense that you're talking about. So the tape is very significant uh, as a piece of evidence if he's indicted and goes to trial. And then, of course, the- For intent too, right? Like, that's right. why'd you steal the? Did you steal them and hide them because you knew you couldn't take them? Yeah, it also, it also starts to fill in that hole of intent, right? Because here you have him, again, we're, we're basing this on our assumption that the, that the tape you know, lives up to its, its description. But if so, you have him actually doing something with the things he stole. That that's shows the jury what he <laughs> intended to do with them in its most basic sense. And of course, it's him speaking in his own voice. There's nothing more powerful than having a juror or a jury listen to the defendant describing what's been charged as a crime. I mean, it's 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 the best evidence you could possibly have, other than maybe a videotape. And Lordy, I hope there's videotapes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do. We have several videotapes. We're going to talk about the surveillance tapes in a little bit. There you go. But my other point that this, you know, this is probably evidence toward intent and evidence toward, you know, uh, to rebut a defense. Um, this is everyone's like, where's this one document? Where is it? Uh, because New York Times just uh, 10 minutes ago put out a story. They can't they can't find the document. Um, the right. lawyers think they sent it back to National Archives. I'm sure Jack would have it. He wouldn't have subpoenaed it if he if it was given back to him uh, at that point. So I think maybe maybe one significant thing is that he had classified not only after the subpoena, but after the search warrant was was issued, if he in fact had this document. But if it can't be found, I, I don't want ever anyone to worry. This is one secret document. 
We found hundreds of documents after that search warrant that were hidden and obstructed and and uh, moved around yeah. and, and, and possibly. So the, we don't need this. Do- the, the case does not hinge on this, on finding this document That's or right. proving that he had it. That's absolutely right. It's uh, contrary to maybe what you heard uh, in the interview interview of uh, Tim Parlatore on CNN the other day, <laughs> that the, you know, he tried to, um, he tried to posit that the relevance of the tape collapses if you can't find the document. That is not true. The, the tape is relevant for the reasons I just laid out. You, it's easily authenticated and admitted as evidence because you have the woman who made the recording has already testified in front of the grand jury. So that's a hurdle that's already over. Um, like you said, it doesn't matter so much that they base a specific charge on that specific document. It's got all these, uh, all these other uh, elements of significance to it. As to whether or not they have it or could find it, that's really a ball in the air from my perspective. You know, there's no question. They've been very concerned for a long time about this idea that they don't have all of the all of the classified or important national defense information documents, the sensitive stuff. They've been pursuing it for months, right? We know that they went in and um, and moved, made a motion for sanctions against Trump and his, and his attorneys for failing to comply with the original subpoena. They didn't get the sanctions yet. I think that's still a possibility, but they haven't, as far as we know, they haven't gotten them. They made that great effort to get Trump's searchers, the two whatever investigators, people who allegedly conducted the, the 14th thorough search of all of his places <laughs> and came up with two more documents even in that effort, um, you know, they went to great lengths to get their identities revealed so that they could be subpoenaed and they testified in front of the grand jury. So clearly this is important to the special counsel team. Um, I think it's possible that they don't have it, uh, but even if they do have it, they still would have dropped the subpoena, like the one that you described at the beginning of this conversation, simply because they're like, well, what else could be there? Let's drop another subpoena. Let's create another obligation, legal obligation on Trump and his, and his attorneys to conclusively hand over anything to do with General Miley or Iran or, you know, I, whatever else is described in their maps, maps and yeah. war plans or whatever. Um, Let's ask Kid Rock. Didn't he show a map to Kid Rock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's really hard to keep track of this now, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think this is really, uh, this thing is a watershed moment. As if they didn't already have an embarrassment of riches in terms of evidence, really inculpatory evidence on this document investigation. Now you have this tape. It's just, um, you know, I said it on on TV the other night. The idea that he won't be indicted is, I, I think, an impossibility at this point with all of this evidence having proved the crime fraud exception to a judge, the idea that they would now back away and say, you know what, we're not going to ask a jury to vote on this, a grand jury to vote on this is just, uh, I don't see that even as a remote possibility. No. And the only other defense I can think that he might bring up is, oh, I was lying. It was a blank piece of paper, like my healthcare plan. There was nothing there. Yeah. You know, in which case he would have to admit that he was lying. I'm fascinated by that because- I know, I and I want to ask you about that because- it doesn't matter. What's on the tape is him admitting that he can't declassify stuff after he leaves office, and that he sh- and he, that he had classified information with him. Uh, and and I mean, so it might make the I had classified information with me uh, argument a little hard. But that second part where he knows 
that he can't declassify stuff after he left office and he should have declassified it before he left office. And is that the only one of the 300 yeah. that you didn't? Oh yeah. It's brutal. You're absolutely right. Um, the, the significance of the tape can even just the tape itself in isolation cannot be, uh, overstated, but think about this. His lawyers have made no public defense of the tape so far. They've gone so far out of their way, twisted themselves in knots to like talk about anything else. Oh, DOJ is leaking, FBI is leaking, which by the way, I find to be unlikely. And we have no indications of that so far. Um, oh, well, you know, if they can't find the document, it all goes away like a puff of smoke. That's all nonsense. The, what you should be taking away from that is not one of them has come out and actually defended this and addressed it directly. The only person who has is Trump, who today made a, some kind of statement, oh, it's all nonsense. I don't know what they're talking about. This, this never happened. That's what he said. This never happened. So now, there, not only does the tape come in, but they bring in witnesses. How many people were in the meeting? Six or eight people. I've heard it described differently. How about bring six people in to testify about what they heard in the meeting and what they saw, and most importantly, what he was doing while he was speaking? They can't say what he said. They don't have to because the tape covers that. It would be hearsay for them to do that anyway. But what they can say is like, okay, they play a little piece of the tape. All right, do you remember him saying that? Yes, I remember that. Okay, what was he doing? Well, he was holding a document in his hand, and he was waving it around, and he was kind of pointing at it as he was speaking. And witness one, did you take from that, from his expression, from his use of the document, holding the document, waving the document, what did you conclude from that? Well, I, I naturally thought that that was the document he was referring to. So if you have multiple witnesses who come in and testify about that, you essentially force him to testify. Now he has to take the stand. If his defense is going to be, oh, that wasn't really the document I was talking about, he either, he either has to come in and say, yeah, that was the super sensitive classified document in my hand, <laughs> or he has to say, no, I lied. I made it all up. And that is not a good thing to tell a jury. You don't, you don't want to sit in front of a jury and say, yeah, that tape you just heard me, that's me lying. That's what I sound like when I'm lying, which coincidentally is a lot <laughs> like what I sound like right now. It's terrible. All of this gets in front of the jury, even if they can't find the document. The jurors can still consider all this evidence and come to the conclusion, we think these six people are telling the truth and that one guy behind the defense table is not, and therefore they convict him. That's how it works. So mm -hmm. I, you know, the efforts to minimize this are, are really kind of laughable. Yeah. And, and they might not have responded yet uh, to this publicly because uh, Trump's got a new lawyer in the documents case. We'll talk about that later in the show, too. But we have to take a quick break right now. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. 
He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. And we are back. All right, Allison, we've got another development in the uh, weekly saga of as the Marlago documents uh, turn. And hey, this, as the as the revolving door of lawyers in Florida turns. Yes, right? and boxes are moved in, and boxes are moved out, and, and there's four more people who know about the boxes. So I have I have a picture in my head of you know the famous I Love Lucy where they have the conveyor belt of the chocolates going, and but it's classified documents like trying so to get them, get them shoving them in their pockets, they're putting them in boxes, tearing them up, eating them, flushing them down the toilet. That's all possible here, and hopefully someday we'll have video of all we'll be watching it uh, as the trial uh, is ongoing. But in in any case, from The Guardian this week, we have uh, Donald Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, who is tasked with searching for the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago after the Justice Department issued the subpoena. Well, Corcoran has told associates that he was waved off from searching the former president's office. So several Trump aides had told Corcoran to search the storage room because that was presumably where all the materials that had been brought from the White House at the end of Trump's presidency ended up being deposited. Well, Corcoran found, we know now, 38 classified documents in the storage room. Of course, this is the storage room that then rendered another 100 or so. But nevertheless, he then asked if he should search anywhere else, like Trump's office or any place else in Mar-a-Lago, but he was basically steered away. It's not clear who waved Corcoran off from searching elsewhere at Mar-a-Lago, whether it was Trump himself or Trump employees who advised him to look for classified documents in the storage room. So I think it might have been not a good witness you that think? waved him off. <laughs> Not a good decision by not a good witness, then. Um, so that is, that is of course, the question in, in our minds right now. Now, The Guardian has previously reported that prosecutors determined that Trump and Nauta knew when and where Corcoran intended to search because Corcoran needed Nauta to unlock the storage room, according to Corcoran's roughly 50 pages of notes. I mean... <laughs> 
Maybe he kept his Diet Coke in that room as well. It's probably totally innocent, Andy. You know, and that's why Corcoran, and that's why uh, Nada had the key. That right? could be it's it. Key. You know, somebody had to go down to the storage room to reload the omelet bar upstairs. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Any of this could happen, but my guess is it was really all about the documents. Well, he was, Nada was his Diet Coke valet in the White House. Remember how he had a Diet Coke button on his desk? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was Nada that would, that would respond with the Diet Coke. So I, I was wondering if that was the Diet Coke storage. It's a bit like... You know, classified documents, Diet Coke. Yeah, sure. You know, anybody who's cleared to access Diet Coke would then, by definition, also have some access to the classified documents. And I actually saw those Diet Cokes on the Resolute desk when I was in the office with Trump. So uh, Nardo <laughs> was doing a good job with the Cokes. That's all I can say. So what's the implication, uh, criminally speaking, or if, if you're an investigator, where um, somebody has been maybe materially misled, uh, particularly a lawyer, uh, where not to search, you know? Do, uh, should you want me to go look in the office? You want me to look in the residence? You want me to look here? You want me to look there? No, nope, just the room. It, particularly interesting, because we know from previous Guardian reporting that Nauda was seen on videotape returning boxes to that room the day before the, you know, Jay Bratt came down from D.C. Yeah. to collect the documents that were found. I mean, the possibilities are not good at the extreme. Because here's what and I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but here's what the timing sounds like to me. Right. They get the subpoena. Trump tells Nada to grab, uh, you know, maybe Trump goes down there and marks some boxes or looks through some boxes or tells Nada to grab the boxes and move them up to the hall outside of the residence. And then Trump goes through them and tells him to, to take these back down and pulls out some documents, puts them in his desk, puts them in the residence hides them somewhere else, and then says, all right, here's a key. Go let Corcoran in to search the storage room. And then Corcoran goes, okay. And I searched and he found 38 documents down there. And uh, and then he goes, do you want me to look anywhere else? No, no, no. That's it. And then he goes, all right, here's the key back. And uh, and then we have Nada returning the boxes back down to the storage facility, putting a lock on it. Uh, maybe, maybe not. And then, all right, call up the... Department of Justice, tell them to come on down. And when they do come down, we'll show you where the storage room is. We'll open but the door. Can't. We'll let you look in, but you can't actually look in any boxes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think the the possibility you laid out there is exactly that, a possibility. Um, if we think about what we do know, absolutely. We know a boatload of documents ended up in his office. Um because that's, of course, where we saw the great photographs from the search, you know, the results of the search warrant with the with the cover sheets all over the floor. Um, it, you know, on the on the in the sense of like, could people be could this be um, criminal activity? Is there something that would lead to a charge here? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. Any attorney who receives a subpoena from the Department of Justice for particular records, whether it's the classified stuff in your bathroom or whatever it el or whatever else it might be, it's attorney 101. You, the first thing you do is you sit down with your client and say, okay, this is what they've asked for. Anything that meets this description has to be turned over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect all that material, but you cannot destroy it. You can't hide it. You can't move it. We'll have an affirmative obligation to turn that stuff over. Now we might collect it and then say we object on this grounds or that grounds but you absolutely can't like hide stuff that is 
the the heart of obstruction of justice. You can, you you've got to make reasonable efforts to search what you have and to make it available. So if Trump- oh, and by the way, also uh, just to throw this little piece into the timeline scenario that I just gave, mm-hmm. June second. So pull you know pull everything out, Walt. Look through it. Trump looks through. It. We have public reporting saying Trump looked through some of these boxes. Uh, and then, all right, take it back down on June 2nd. He takes it back down on June 2nd. We have that on video with his friend. Uh, then, all right, here's the key. Go ahead and let Corcoran in and tell him to search only in the storage room. And then the next day, Walt Nauta and his buddy are helping pack the SUV to go to Bedminster. And we have photos of public reporting of, of documents boxes being loaded into that SUV on his way to Bedminster. Did he take them out before Brat got there, you know, I mean, that, again, I'm, I'm speculating, but all these pieces of information that we know, if put in the right order, just absolutely spell disaster for obstruction charges for Trump. Yeah. And it's it's just as much obstruction if you're doing it to deceive your own attorney. Right. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like if your attorney is actually doing his job and obeying the law as attorneys are supposed to, um, it makes sense that you might want to hide from your attorney the incriminating records or material or contraband that you have. So it, I think it's it's really a ripe source of potential um, obstruction charges. It's, it smells very obstruction-y. Now, whether or not the government can prove that is a different story, right? You're, it's, it's based a lot on witness testimony and, of course, the infamous videotapes, which apparently they have some of, but they also have some concerns what they have or what they originally received might not have been uh, the whole story or have been complete because we know they've they've gone to some lengths to go to the service provider, the company that um, that basically stores the recordings, the electronic recordings of that stuff, and they've had people testify about that. So it's this is really at the heart of what um, of one of the many aspects, many ways in which Trump uh, may have obstructed. DOJ's efforts to recover this important national security material. Yeah. And and let's take this a step further with Walt Nada, because this is from the New York Times just this week, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, an IT worker uh, named Tavares, Yuskel Tavares, appeared before a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Now, by the way, that's at odds with the Washington Post reporting that the grand jury has been on hiatus since May 5th. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, very much so. Uh, unless they meant three weeks ago. <laughs> but Tavares, the IT guy, I'm just going to call him the IT guy, was asked questions about his dealings with two other Trump employees. That's Walt Nada, mm-hmm. longtime aide to Trump, and a guy named Carlos de Oliveira. That's the guy who helped Nada move the boxes. So we're going to call him Carlos. Uh, so we have got Walt and Carlos. Uh, and then we've got the IT guy. Now, the phone records show that Carlos called the IT guy, that's Walt's friend, yep. called the IT guy after Trump was subpoenaed for his surveillance tapes and asked the IT guy uh, questions about the cameras and how long the recordings were kept, stuff like that. Now, his lawyer, John Irving, has told the, the ah, it's totally innocent, just curious, weird IT talk. Okay. Now, Walt Nada and, and, and Tavares, the IT guy, have the same lawyer, and he's being paid by the Save America PAC. And the lawyer for uh, Delavera, the Carlos, the friend of Walt Nada, is John Irving. We've talked about him before. And he's also being paid by the Save America PAC. 
and reports are that DOJ and Jack Smith are skeptical of all of them. <laughs> yeah, we, we know they've been, you know, they've been 12 rounds with NADA in, mm-hmm. out, cooperating, not. And now apparently all those conversations have broke down. Um, mm-hmm. we don't, we're not sure what the status is, whether or not they're seeking the cooperation of either of the other two guys. Um, and look, to be fair, uh, if you received a subpoena that requested, you know, su- surveillance tapes, videotapes from a, a designated time span, it's not out, you know, it's not outrageous to think that you might then reach out to your IT guy to figure out how do I get that? How do we download it? Is it even available? How long do we keep recordings of stuff? So there could be. Yeah, but why is this guy, why is Carlos asking those questions and not Trump's lawyer? Yeah. I don't know. It's well, just weird. It, it, it's a, it, I tell you, it, it could be, you know, uh, innocent. But yeah, it could be or not. Uh, Corcoran <laughs> might have been like, "Hey, ask this IT guy, your yeah. friend, some questions." Or it but, could, you or know, it could be right at the center of this. How do we get rid of these tapes without leaving any trace that we ever had them? That's the beauty of getting these witnesses in front of the in front of the grand jury. Now, you mm-hmm. know, if they're all represented by Trump paid for attorneys. That's the built in conflict here that we've seen with so many people. And it's not just in this investigation. You got that in the January 6th investigation. You had that for with witnesses in front of the January 6th committee. Um, and we've talked a lot about, are these attorneys truly representing the interests of these witnesses only, or are they also exe- you know, trying to represent them in a way that's consistent with the interests of Donald Trump? That seems highly likely in my estimation, just, you know, worth what you paid for it. I think if anybody can weed that out, I think it would be Jack Smith. I think, yeah. I think Jack Smith could be like, look, I'm going to charge you. Uh, and, and if you, you know, you might need some different counsel. Yeah. There's all kinds of room for that to happen here, right? It, their first round of indictments that comes out of this thing are likely not going to be just for, you know, one person, just for Donald Trump. So, you throw in a few of these people, they now are looking at not the prospect of being charged, but actually being charged. And that has a way of convincing people to say, you know what, it's time for me to cooperate. We saw it a lot. We saw it with Rick Gates. We saw it. I mean, this, you know, this is how the lessons we learned from the Mueller investigation. And also, I think one of the buried leads in this story, which they're very good at at the New York Times, burying leads. Uh, there were multiple subpoenas sent out for surveillance tapes. So the first one came in June, June 24th. And we know that because Corcoran had a phone call with Trump on that day, same day that that subpoena went out for the surveillance tapes, the first one. Uh, And that phone call, uh, information about that phone call had to be turned over, uh, compelled by the court because of the crime fraud exception to Pierce attorney-client privilege. Now, um, but the Times here reports, people with knowledge said uh, the first such subpoena was issued last June, but prosecutors sent separate subpoenas to the company, uh, that's the Trump organization, seeking surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago, several more subpoenas, that is, for a wider array of footage. So that's also interesting. Like, oh, well, we only got the footage from the camera looking at the door. Now we would like it from the place uh, outside the residence and inside the residence and uh, out by the loading dock. And, you know, (laughs) you know, because now you might have some, uh, oh, it looks like there's some boxes missing from this room because 12 were taken out and four were brought back. You know, I'm making stuff yeah. up. Um, but that that would, oh, well, we need to, where'd those other boxes go? Let's 
look at the other, you know, look at the rest of those surveillance cameras. Let's go out. to the videotape and the. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right, and we've talked about this before. It's uh, this is what happens when you see uh, investigators lock onto a new and surprising and productive lead. They'll often take a step back and then broaden the scope of what they're asking for, just to make sure they've swept up everything that's relevant. So, you know, obviously they see the cameras, I'm I'm guessing, in the hallway when they're there with Jay Bratt for the infamous meeting. They have the brilliant idea to say, let's drop a subpoena for that. What? Let's see if they have any recordings. Well, and, this could be the evidence that was developed that they talked about in the affidavit. We've developed evidence that's that right. there's still documents there. That's right. You know, we saw we saw eight boxes go out. We saw four boxes come back. We looked for, we had got, uh, you know, subpoenaed some more yeah. surveillance footage and found out that, uh, you know, uh, they were being stored somewhere else or they were sitting yep. uh, in outside the residence or inside the residence. And whatever it is. Um, if it nothing could, else, it might just be. identify additional people who are cruising up and down those hallways near to the document spaces. And it's easier to see who is actually there and who might have seen something, heard something, participated in something, and then focus your interviews on those people rather than just asking for a, a list of every employee at Mar-a-Lago. That, that takes a while to get through. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Uh, believe it or not, uh, we still have more news, by the way. Uh, Todd Blanche, former prosecutor who resigned from an elite law firm, uh, is uh, going to defend Donald Trump, not only against the New York Manhattan DA criminal charges, but he's now involved in his defense in the documents case. He was a supervisor at the Southern District of New York. He's replacing the the vacancy left by Parlatore. So that's happening. And also today, breaking news. Mike Pence has been cleared by the Department of Justice of wrongdoing for his having classified documents found at his residence in Indiana. And uh, this is significant because it ties up that loose end. But also importantly, uh, Andy, I want to read to you what I had posited. Let's see if I can even find it. Uh, I, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to bother to read the tweets. But basically, you know, I, everyone, I remember all the pundits saying, oh, Merrick Garland's painted himself into a corner after he uh, appointed Robert Hur to investigate President Biden's uh, classified documents sitch. Everyone's like, oh, well, now he's going to have to appoint one to look into Pence. Now he's going to have to appoint a special counsel. He's painted himself in a corner. What a dumbass. You know, I mean, people, <laughs> people yeah. were, and I'm like, look, that's not going to happen here. He doesn't have to appoint a special counsel. It's not, uh, you know, Pence is not a candidate uh, for president at that point. Uh, I, and I, I was like, I don't think he's gonna. And that is exactly what happened. The Department of Justice itself looked into this, determined there was no wrongdoing and sent a letter yesterday, Thursday, I should say, to Pence's attorneys saying we, we found nothing wrong. Here. Yeah. So this is a big move, a big result. And it's not unexpected, obviously, because I think that everybody thought that this was going to head in that direction. But it's a really inconvenient and unfortunate comparison for the Trump team right now. Um, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. He made the right call on having DOJ do it. This this investigation, this inquiry really into the Pence documents didn't have near the political implications of the other two. And that's why you bring in a special counsel, right? To convey to the American people that you're investigating in the most neutral way possible. Yeah, could you imagine Merrick Garland himself investigated Biden's? Whether, yeah, come it on. just uh, it did not make any sense for to have Garland overseeing the investigators uh, who are investigating the guy who hired him. So in any case, I think he handled it the right way. Um, one of Trump's 
more frequent defenses recently, particularly with the letter they sent to Congress, has been, oh, this is not fair. This is an illegal investigation. I'm not being treated fairly. Um, to have a very similar inquiry on the most in the most basic sense, conducted, concluded, um, and and announced in this way is a tough comparison for him because it highlights how different his situation is from Mike Pence's situation. And I think you will probably find the same result in the Joe Biden situation. And ultimately, hats off to Mike Pence. I got to give him credit. When this thing opened up, he did the exact opposite of what Trump did. He said, we found these documents. They should never have been there. We made a, a, a serious mistake. And I'm fully account. I'm, I'm totally, I'm taking full responsibility for this. And so it started, and, and also, they, as soon as they found the stuff, they handed it over to DOJ and opened up the residence for a search. That's the way these inquiries are usually handled. People often find they've made a mistake with classified, they find it home. And I say people, I'm talking about like really highly ranked former principals, political um, folks in the White House and, and in the agencies, people who live, in, you know, swimming in a sea of classified material everywhere <laughs> they go. These mistakes happen. They get looked into. When you see there's no criminal intent here, there's no intent to withhold and 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 uh, take this stuff out of the places where they belong, you just wrap it up and walk away. That's why most of these things never end up in criminal inquiries, but that is wildly not the situation with Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think we'll even find similar situations within Donald Trump world when they found those two documents in an offsite storage right. facility That's that right. Trump probably had no idea they were there and, right. and never never knew they were there and they were probably accidentally packed and shoved in there. Uh, and that's likely what happened with Biden's sitch and likely what happened with uh, with Pence's. Uh, but I think that even, like I said, with even within Trump's own world, there will be non-indictable accidental retention of classified material. Um, because like you said, these people are surrounded by it every day. It happens sometimes to get swept up in boxes, but they're packed by AIDS. So I think that, that, you know, we'll see it within itself, too, to, to compare to. And, and I, I, you know, this is some stuff I think that is good to wrap up before any uh, charges are brought uh, against Donald because it, it, yeah, it's significant. I think that's true. And the last thing I'll say about it is it does raise some, I think, very relevant questions about Rob Herr. So two very similar uh, inquiries, Biden and Pence, and this thing done by DOJ was basically opened done thoroughly. They've just, they've concluded it, announced it. So what's going on with Rob Herr? Um, yeah, especially since the Rob Herr Biden thing was going on for two months before Rob Herr was even appointed. So, yeah, and the, well, first, yeah, and the first month or so of that, he wasn't doing anything because he didn't actually start the gig until several weeks after he'd been appointed. So shows a little bit of the, this is some of the trouble with special counsels. Often they take a long time to get staffed, to get funded, to kind of get off the ground. Uh, and they drag on forever. Not the case so much with Jack Smith. That guy got back here quick, first plane back from wherever the heck he was. and He was issuing letters on Thanksgiving Day before he even came back yeah, from the Hague. Yeah, laying up on guy. his sofa with a broken leg or something. He's firing <laughs> off uh, search warrant applications. So, uh, yeah, very different. As far as I'm concerned, he's he's the flying Dutchman in the the season finale of Ted Lasso. <laughs> That's all I have to say. No spoiler. But, uh, no spoiler. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. No worries. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> sorry, a uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> I thought everybody would have watched it by now. Anyway, we're going to be right back. We've still got more news, you guys. <laughs> There's so much this week. Stick around.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Remember when I hinted about Vivek Ramaswamy at the top of the show? I do. The presidential candidate. Well, he's fired one of the firms consulting for his presidential campaign after it was revealed that the firm had simultaneously been doing public relations work for a major Saudi-backed entity. This is the firm uh, that was working for, for Vivek revealed it drafted marketing materials. The, the firm, by the way, is called Gitcho Good Godwin. Uh, Goodwin, I think, actually. Gitcho Goodwin. Yep. And they revealed that they drafted marketing materials, conducted media training for players. This is the Live Golf Tournament, Andy, and advised the Golf League on its corporate social responsibility strategy. Is that, <laughs> is that a, something they actually wanted advice on? I'm a little surprised. but Like, did they come up with the trophy idea? Because that's hideous. <laughs> according, and this is according to new Foreign Agents Registration Act filings. Now, a lawyer who advised the firm on its decision to register as a foreign agent, told Politico that Gitcho Goodwin had parted ways with the Golf League. They're like, oh, okay, well, if we have to, you know, we'll file, we'll register, but we're, we want to quit. We're going to quit working with Liv if it's a, if it's a big deal to you. Uh, so they left on Monday morning, and the firm would take the appropriate steps to terminate its FARA uh, registration. Now, they also were like, I, you know, then Vivek fired them uh, and... That's sort of the end of that. Uh, but this is interesting because, like I said earlier, it comes a month after um, we got 
information subpoenaed by Jack Smith about the Live Golf Tournament. And I can't help but think that is probably not in his purview at all. Um, you know, who's who's uh, shilling for, for the Live Golf Tournament. But I, fe- I feel like there was a list of names handed over to the FARA unit by uh, Jack Smith after, upon receiving, uh, you know, information pursuant to that subpoena. Yeah. And, you know, handed it off. Just, you know, Mueller handed off, like, I think 14 cases. Yeah, so. yeah it's totally within the, uh, within the um, duties of the special counsel. If they come across other potentially criminal um, activity or potential national security threats, that they would uh, refer those back to the Department of Justice if they're outside the scope of their, of their remit, as it were. Um, this thing is really interesting because, of course, the Live Golf Tournament you know, you're talking about the Live Golf Tournament. You're talking about the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is basically, um, you know, this is the absolute highest levels of the kingdom. And the idea that you have Saudi royal money going into the public relations firm, you the same firm who advises a current candidate for the presidency, it just really raises some hard questions about that proximity of foreign money to domestic campaigns. Now, of course, there's, you know, there's a cutout in this, in the connection here, and that that being the uh, public relations firm. Um, you could view it as a cutout, or you could view it as a connection, depends on how uh, your perspective on it. But it certainly seems uh, worthy of, of further poking around. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And in still yet more news, um, well, let's switch over from uh, documents, because, you know, we've been talking about documents with Walt Nada and his friends. Walt Nada and friends. Uh, that's that's the new uh, segment. We talked about uh, Vivek. We talked about the tapes um, and the audio. Uh, let's switch over to the January 6th sure. investigation because yep. Jack Smith is still, this is still an ongoing investigation into everything that happened on January 6th. And uh, from the New York Times, uh, according to, uh, I think it was Haberman and, um, and a couple of other people on the byline, Jack Smith has subpoenaed staff members from the Trump White House who may have been involved in firing the government cybersecurity expert Chris Krebs, whose agency judged the election as, quote, the most secure in American history. Uh, they go on to say that Smith's team is seeking information about how White House officials, including the presidential personnel office, <laughs> approached the Justice Department, approached the DOJ and presidential personnel office. That's our buddy, Johnny McEntee. That's right. Our favorite legal brief author. <laughs> Johnny McEntee, who used to hide full bottles of Smirnoff ice in the PPO. And if you found them, you had to chug them. One of the Ocha Nostra, who has not yet been brought back in to, to testify uh, again, because, you know, Judge Howell said, no, no executive privilege. Come back in and, and answer all the questions. Yep. He hasn't been brought back in that we know of. Uh, he also is the guy, McEntee, who drafted the withdrawal from Afghanistan memo. Yep. <laughs> he also drafted a legal defense about Thomas Jefferson over uh, the issue of whether or not Pence could throw out electors. And he also drafted a document to replace... Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, because he said he was not amenable to invoking the Insurrection Act. McEntee is the guy who went around and did the, the loyalty interview uh, of, of appointee-level uh, folks within, within these agencies. So this is McEntee. 
And he put together a list of reasons to fire Chris Krebs. And we, we learned all this in the January 6th hearings uh, that took place last year because Chris Krebs, after he said that this most secure election ever, there was no foreign interference. There was no vote changing votes. Nothing. Just no, there was none of that. It's just like Bill Barr said. It's bullshit. And that incensed Donald Trump. He was very upset about that and wanted him fired. So they put together a list of reasons to fire him. Now, I wanted to ask you, Andy, this seems like um, information that goes toward intent. If, if, if you're going around and firing anyone who says the election wasn't rigged, that seems to go toward you knew the election was rigged. Um, I'm not quite sure how to make that argument. I'm sure somebody uh, smarter than me would be able to make it. But it seems to look, he knew the election was rigged and he fired anyone who didn't. Now, of course, Trump could say, I fired them because they were wrong uh, or incompetent. That's right. But regardless, I think Chris Krebs would make an excellent witness uh, for special counsel in January 6th. I agree with you. And full disclosure, I know Chris pretty well. He's uh, he's a person of of high integrity. He's a professional. I think he did a great job at CISA. And I think um, his comments about the election were accurate. Um, I, I think we all, <laughs> we've all seen that now. Not all of us admit it, uh, but m- many of us do. Um, I think you're, you're exactly right. There's no really, uh, there's no possibility of a criminal charge related to the firing of Chris Krebs. He was a political appointee. He could be dismissed by the president at any time for any reason. But what makes this interesting, and this is the way prosecutors, if they intend to rely on Krebs's testimony and and evidence about this, they'll want to put it in front of the jury because in that shaping that you just mentioned, they'll want to say, no, he got fired because he wasn't going along with the lie, with the fraud about the, you know, the claims that the election had been, um, had been undermined. So, you know, you, you imagine like some sort of conversation went on with McEntee, maybe Trump, who knows, like, Hey, we got to get rid of this guy because he's, he's blowing up our spot. He's, he's directly contradicting, uh, the falsehood that we're trying to perpetrate. They got rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it got rid of me too. Wow. Um, so I, I digress. But, you know, then Trump can come back or McEntee, whoever it is, come back and say, no, we had all these other reasons to get, we didn't, weren't happy with his performance. You know, he spoke out of turn. He was out of control. He was off message, whatever, whatever. So, you know, where you come down on, which side you come down on that is not quite as important as just the fact that prosecutors can get this in front of a jury through Krebs's testimony. And, you know, the jurors decide, they weigh all this stuff out and they decide who they think is lying and who's telling the truth and why something was done uh, or why, you know, why it may not have been done. So you're right, it goes to intent. It goes to um, whether or not there was truly a conspiracy to perpetuate this fraud of a stolen election. And one of the ways you could prove that was by the conspirators acting out against getting rid of taking out firing people who wouldn't go along with the conspiracy and and yeah. that's that's how the prosecutors would try to use this and it would be very powerful just as it was powerful in the January 6th hearings to have republican after republican after republican come up and testify that we told him that he lost the election right. and that this was bs and that it was the best election or not well the most secure election 
It's the best election for uh, America, but the most secure election, and et cetera, et cetera, just over and over and over and over, a montage of just, you know, people saying that the big lie was a big lie. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to this last point that I want to make. And the, the last three um, of the Ocha Nostra, the three-eighths wrench, I call them, uh, and that's O'Brien and McEntee and Meadows. And if they are not brought back in, that says to me that they're either cooperating uh, or they're targets. And so I'm I'm wondering now, is McEntee become a target? Is he cooperating? I think O'Brien's a cooperating guy. I mean, he was he was about to resign when January 6th happened. He wasn't in the country at the time. Um, but that brings us down to Meadows. What is going on with Mark Meadows? <laughs> Where is he? He's got a fantastic lawyer. I mean, I don't like him personally, but it's a, he's a great lawyer, Terwilliger, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, he um, is. Very smart. One of the smartest lawyers on that side of the Very aisle. well respected. Huge reputation in town, uh, in D.C. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's he brought in the heavyweight. The, the mysterious Mr. Meadows. You know, he he has been on both sides of this thing from the very beginning, you know, he releases a book that in, that enrages Trump, and then he comes back and refuses to testify. But then he gives over thousands of text messages. So he's he's back and forth. You know, I tend to interpret the things he does as being not very well advised and maybe poor decisions. But he's still out there floating around, kind of maintaining his uh, mysterious position. So maybe he's cagier uh, than I give him credit for. Um, a lot of talk about, you know, in light of the the infamous tape that we discussed at the top of the show, uh, there's a lot of talk about maybe Meadows cooperating had something to do with that. Um, I think that we have a pretty good understanding of how the government found out about the tape, and it doesn't really include a lot of sp- any specifics about Meadows, so I'm not so sure about well, that. Well, it was but- the it was the aide, right, uh, Margot Martin, that was recording that meeting. Two people working on Meadows's book were in there. I'm not sure if they're ghostwriters right. or researchers, uh, but they've all been questioned, um, and and. And Margot Martin, it's, it makes sense that the prosecutors would have gotten around to interviewing and and possibly bringing. And well, we know interviewing and bringing before the grand jury Margot Martin because she's an she's a Trump aide, and so that might have been the, the you know the initial uh, kind of uh, pry bar under the door that got us to this to this point. But um, it's hard to and say. And they eventually ended up after she testified about the recording. They subpoenaed her devices, right, That's her right. computer and stuff. That's like right. That. So. But we'll There's more a- to find out on Meadows because he's <laughs> he's gonna show up at the end of this story <laughs> in either the defendant's box or the government's witness box. One of the two. Well, because Meadows in his book wrote about that Iran yeah. thing, and I can't see Jack Smith not questioning him about that. Uh, no I know. Way. I mean, I I know it's that he's part of the January sixth, but Meadows was also burning documents yeah. and. Meadows had the memo that, uh, you know, when on January 19th, the day before I left office, Trump wanted to declassify a bunch of Russia documents. And Meadows was like, no, and took him back to the DOJ. Yeah. So Meadows can't have not been questioned in the documents case. And since he hasn't been brought before the grand jury, either he's meeting virtually or he's cooperating or I I don't know. I he just don't know. He can't know. have not been questioned in the Gen 6 case, right? I mean, he's, he is the essential, he's right there. Yeah, but that's he's, still going on, right? Yeah. And the whole documents case is sort of wrapped up according to some reporting, uh, at least, you know, with the witnesses. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like if he hasn't been brought in before the grand jury, if brought in before the grand jury, that he has to be, he has to have been questioned about the documents. 
it's a totally reasonable guess. And it's also possible that if he's not essential or is less essential to the documents case and like really important for the January 16th, this is like, let's assume for the sake of the argument that he's cooperating and his information on documents is good, but his information on Jan 6 is like, you can't do without it. You could see prosecutors constructing a case, avoiding him in the documents case. Don't use him because you want to save him and his testimony and everything else for the January 6th case. So, yeah. And how does that play into what Fonnie Willis is doing? Yeah. She, he's involved in, 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 in her investigation as well. So, you know, I mean, at the very least, in August, we should know whether or not Mark Meadows is cooperating. Because if he's not indicted in the... In the Unless the DOJ maybe said you can't touch, you can't have him, but he did testify yeah. in in in, the, in front of the phone. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. Crazy. <laughs> so much stuff. All right, we have time for a question. I think maybe two if they're short. Uh, but I've, we, you know, we've ra- we have so much news this week. Yeah. So what do we got? I've only got one for you. It's a little bit longer, but uh, I think it's it's a topic that I think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Okay, if it's a little bit longer, why don't we take a real quick break and then we'll be back with these questions and we'll wrap it up. Everybody stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, Allison, we are back and we have time for our listener question of the week. 
This week's question I picked because I think it's a topic that a lot of people are thinking about right now. Um, and it is, it comes to us from Michael B. And Michael asks, for each of Smith's investigations, what do you expect to see in terms of indictments? As you both know very well, Mueller indicted people periodically throughout his investigation, typically with speaking indictments. And that's what we call indictments that are really heavy with facts and explanations. Thus far, we have not seen that from Smith, but the Jan 6 case especially looks like a target-rich environment, so to speak. When Jack Smith gets to that stage, do you expect him to indict everyone all at once, or will the indictments play out more like they did with Mueller? So there's a couple of issues packed in there. Um, I think that Jack Smith will make a pretty big statement with a lot of indictments right up front, but that does not mean that he won't, after those indictments come out, then continue to indict additional people. The only problem with doing that is it extends your timeline a bit because it's you know you're you're stretching out the uh, the time that you could bring the initial case to trial if you keep adding folks into it later. But nevertheless, prosecutors do that when they find that they're going to what we call supersede or bring additional charges to the original indictment. So my guess is he's going to hit pretty hard right up front. It's not going to be a low-level person, a onesie twosie. It's he's going to shoot, I think, right at the center of whatever conspiracies or crimes that he's um that he's going to indict. So that's what I'm looking uh looking for from him. Uh what's your thoughts on that? Well, did he also ask what crimes in each of the investigations we thought would be charged? He kind of started out with that, but didn't didn't finish. I think that's the other piece here that a lot of people are talking about. On the, it's easier question to answer, right, in terms of the documents case, because we got a, a foreshadowing of that with the search warrant affidavit, which talked a lot about obstruction of justice and also using the Espionage Act, which makes it a crime to uh, withhold or or basically take national defense information. I also think it's possible that they could throw in uh, charges that are based on having misuse of classified information or felony misuse of classified information. Um, I think there's still a lot of potential there with respect to specific documents as well. On the Gen yeah. 6 side, it's a little bit more murky. Yeah. And um, by the way, uh, our friends over at Just Security have put out a, a, an updated prosecution memo um for the uh you know for what they think uh could be charged right and this yep. is uh, Weissman and Goodman uh, Goodman and 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 all of all of those folks and so in that model prosecution memo the crimes specifically laid out are uh retention of national defense information which is 18793E concealing government records that's 20712071 Conversion of government property, which oh. is 18 U.S. Code 641. Obstruction of justice, which is 18 U.S. Code 1519. Criminal contempt, 402, Section 402, and false statements, Section 1001. Those are the crimes they think are can be, on the table, anyway. Are on the yeah. table. And with the January 6th, we've got 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. We've got uh, Title 18 U.S. Code 371, conspiracy, conspiracy. To, to do stuff. Yep. <laughs> and then... Uh, we could look at uh, 2383, 2384, insurrection, seditious conspiracy. I don't know what Jack Smith has uh, to feel comfortable to say either of those um, are, are chargeable, but they're definitely on the table. And we know Judge Carter in California said, 
that, you know, pursuant to, you know, piercing the attorney client privilege with the crime fraud exception that Trump and Eastman were guilty of 371 and 1512 C2. So yep. that's kind of, those are sort of what, what I'm looking at. Yeah. Charlie um, Savage in the times, I think a few days ago had an interesting piece comparing, uh, comparing seditious conspiracy with insurrection. And I think uh, on the Trump facts, certainly seditious conspiracy is probably the more likely of those two simply because it doesn't require um, the use of force. Uh, that's a- Or that's you mean a, incite, inciting an insurrection? That's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, you know, but we'll have to see. I mean, that case is much bigger, arguably more important. Um and uh, it's the one I that, think it is. Yeah, we haven't had the same sort of revelations about, you know, bombshell evidence, pieces of evidence and tapes and everything coming out every other week. So it's harder, uh, harder to pick. But uh, there's a lot there for them to work on. Yeah. And those are also 371 and 1512, the two crimes that the January 6th commission uh, submitted as criminal referrals yeah. for Donald Trump. Um, very cool question. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just, uh, you know, I would say I agree 100 percent with you. Uh, you know, I, I that's I think that's where we're at uh, with it. I mean, it's, it's a very complex case, um, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest in, in history. So, I mean, we're, we'll see how it all shakes out. But, you know, with the Mueller investigation, we got Papadopoulos, then we got Manafort Gates, then we got Patton. But the thing, the difference here is we weren't waiting for him to indict Trump. He couldn't indict Trump. And he knew that going in mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to indict Trump. So it's hard to say whether he would, if he could, whether he would have indicted Trump, uh, you know, yeah. for obstruction right when he indicted Manafort and Gates. But, you know, who knows? Uh, it's really hard. And, you know, Flynn for lying yeah. uh, a couple times. And, and so Mueller, it's, it's hard to tell because we, we just don't even have something. We don't even have apples to compare it to. Yeah. Mueller really used that technique of indicting people, as we were just discussing, as a way of pressuring them to cooperate. And that worked with Gates. Didn't work quite so well with Manafort. It worked a little bit at the beginning, but then that all fell apart. You don't see that happening here as the investigation's going on. Um, sounds like they tried that with Walt Nada. It didn't work out. We don't know if they've tried it with the other, with Nada's two uh, box-moving friends or the tech guy or anything else, but um, we haven't seen that uh, work successfully yet. But I don't, I don't think that that could be telling us that they don't need to. They have enough people who are cooperating and telling them what they need to know, and uh, they're going to drop the hammer hard first round and see who starts knocking on the door after that. Yeah, and one lesson learned from Mueller might be don't do it that way because then people blow up their plea agreements and stop cooperating and get pressure from the Trump side. So, you know, when I think of if I'm Jack Smith, should I go ahead and indict Eastman and Clark now? Or uh, should I wait? Because if I indict them now, uh, I could create all sorts of interference and obstruction and problems with from yeah. the Trump side and, uh, if, and just wait, get them all at the same time. And if everyone's being represented by Trump funded attorneys, that makes that even more complicated. Yeah. Uh, one quick question for you that mm-hmm. was submitted by a listener before we get out of here from L. Baker. Uh, and uh, this is a great question. I, I think I heard Weissman talking a little bit about this on um, Deadline White House, but a lot of folks wrote in and asked why, if we have him on tape talking about having a classified document at Bedminster, do we not have a search warrant for Bedminster? Well, the answer to that is the uh, prosecutors have to prove to the judge that there is probable cause to believe that that evidence, in this case, the document, is in that present is on that premises now, and there's. 
a number of, it seems like, oh, well, here, here he was talking about it. Let's remember the conversation was in, I think, June or July of two 2021, years ago, yeah, right? Almost two, two years, years ago. ago. And since that time, there's allegedly been, and I say allegedly with air quotes around it, there's allegedly been uh, multiple thorough searches for additional documents. All these documents should have been turned over under the original subpoena, uh, bef- the subpoena that was served before the infamous uh, Jay Bratt meeting down at Mar-a-Lago. So there's been a lot of time has expired. There have been searches. They've been told there's nothing else there. They had the so-called independent or private searchers do that work as well. So all of that activity kind of undermines your argument about probable cause that there's documents there now. The, you know, the judge is looking for what they call that is that's the PC going stale, right? If your information is there was a document there two years ago, the judge is going to say, that's stale. You, you, you need something new. Your probable cause new, is stale. Right. Yeah. You need someone who's there now who says they saw it recently and something like that. And it's like that's when they went they back are. in and, and searched Rudy again, they had had, they got fresh information and evidence exactly. that allowed them to do that. Exactly. I think, and with the, with the obvious concern that Jack Smith has about more documents being in these Trump cons- Trump controlled spaces. There's no doubt in my mind that if they had probable cause to search Bedminster and Trump Tower or any place else, they would have done that. So it tells me yeah. they don't think they have PC at this point. Yeah, and I don't think we would not know if they did. No, oh, no, you you'd know because Trump would tell you. <laughs> He's or the one, one that, of, or one of Trump's lawyers who hated another lawyer and wanted to get back at Epstein, so he told. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's I mean, a zoo down there. That's how we found out about Mar-a-Lago. Trump tweeted about it, so or yeah. put it out on Truth or whatever it is. <laughs> All right, well, heck of a show this week. Uh, every week, I ask you, like, what possibly could happen this week? <laughs> I don't know. Buckle in. We'll, uh, <laughs> Buckle we'll have in. to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, I do think charges are, are coming sooner rather than later. But again, I want to emphasize anything could happen. They could get somebody flipped. They could mm-hmm. f- get some uh, information back pursuant to a recent subpoena that went out a couple of weeks ago. It's 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 all very up in the air until it's not. Yeah, I mean, that's my, just sort of. I'm a, the only thing I'm confident about is this time next week, we'll be talking about something that we didn't know today. That is 100% true. And if you have any questions, please send them to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just make sure to put Jack in the subject line or we will miss it um, because that's how we sort our emails. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was great. Thank you for answering these listener questions. And thanks for everyone. To, thanks to everyone for sending them in. We will be back next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And thanks for listening to Jack. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. 
but with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.